So when I moved to Central Ohio 11 years ago from New York, the biggest adjustment I had to make was getting used to driving a car pretty much everywhere. At that point, I hadn't owned and I barely drove a car for about 12 years. Getting around Ohio in any other way can be hard, which means that accessible transportation is also an issue of privilege. I try to take buses to surrounding cities when I go there for work, but it's rarely a relaxing or pleasurable experience. It's certainly not the amazing experience I had in my 20s, traveling around Europe on trains, relaxing and reading books, not to mention the environmental benefits of those systems. I moved to the city of Grandview just west of Columbus in part because of its walkability, but it's slow and sometimes frustrating to get downtown on local buses. I do think that Coda is in many ways great, and they're making really good progress, but there's still a lot of work to do. And then, of course, there's a myriad of other issues, including biking, scooters, and the tantalizing prospect of passenger rail from Cleveland to Cincinnati. With infrastructure, including transportation infrastructure, in the news a lot these days, I'm finally doing the episode on sustainability and transportation that I've wanted to do for some time. And of course, transportation is hugely consequential to health and healthcare, so that's just what we're going to be talking about this week. My guest today is somebody whose work I've followed for more than a decade, Dr. Harvey Miller, who's Royce Chair of Geographic Information Science and Director of the Center for Urban and Regional Analysis at Ohio State University. You can read more about Harvey's work and also some of the issues we discuss by checking out our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. While you're at prognosisohio.com, check out the more than 90 past episodes we've got posted there and read up on what we're doing with the show. If you can, please consider supporting the show for just $3 a month by becoming a Patreon. We'd especially appreciate your support as we continue to grow the show and head towards our 100th episode, bringing you more conversations like the one you're about to hear. Okay, now to my conversation with Professor Harvey Miller. Hey Harvey, thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I've wanted to have you for quite a while, so it's it's a real treat to be able to do this. And I especially thought about, well, this is the time because of the passing of the infrastructure bill and just how much conversation there is about transportation around the state, which is a good thing. We want more conversation about transportation. We certainly do. So, so with a thousand or so things I'd like to ask you, and keeping in mind that we have a finite amount of time today, I wanted to start with just kind of a big picture question. Um, you know, you're you're somebody with expertise in sustainable transportation. So I want to just get your your big picture assessment here. How are we doing? How do you think about the state of Ohio's kind of transportation comparatively? Are we a mess? Are we in the middle? Is it uneven? Like, how, how do you explain that to kind of the average person that uh, you know you talk with? I think it's very uneven. I think we're seeing some good things in communities such as Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus. I I see a lot of good things happening at the local level. I think statewide, we still have a long way to go. And I think the biggest problem in Ohio is you really have very low funding for public transit at the state level. We're really one of the worst states in the country for funding public transit. To give you an example, the two-year state budget for transportation just passed recently is about $8.3 billion, and state public transit advocates had a fight tooth and nail to get $140 million, and we almost got zero. So people were happy about that, but in fact, it's a very little victory because it's less than 2% of the state transportation budget. So that means that the playing field for transportation is very uneven in Ohio. In Ohio, We put a lot of money into roads, highways, and driving, and very little into uh, public transit, 
walkability and bikeability. And that's something we really need to work on at the state level. I, I, I've been forwarding a goal that we should try to raise the share of public transit to 10% in the state transportation budget. I'd like that to happen right away. Um, if we can get there by 2030, I think that'd be be a more realistic goal. But I, I think if we if we did that, we still would have, you know, cars and highways and driving would get the vast majority of the support, 90%. Mm-hmm. But with 10% of our going from like 2% and having to fight for that every two years and going to 10%, that would really transform what we're seeing in a lot of Ohio's communities. And really, we would see some real significant changes. And if we also knew that funding was dependable every two-year budget cycle rather than having to be fought every time, I, th- I think that would help a lot. Yeah, I'm guessing when you have a small amount of money like that as well, it means that all of the various constituencies, all the different stakeholders come out and fight tooth and nail to get what little there is. And that might even intensify the kind of nastiness of the politics or limit what we can do creatively. But I think within the within within the community of people working in sustainable transportation, I think there's general agreement on what needs to be done. Hmm. I think it's, it, we just need to shift the landscape so that the playing field between driving, public transit, walk, walking and biking is more even, that they have a fight, especially public transit has more of a fighting chance to be successful in Ohio. Right now, it really um, doesn't have a fighting chance. It just doesn't have the support to be able to compete as a mode with, with, with driving. And I think that's, that's really a big issue here in Ohio. So as I mentioned, and as listeners like well, surely no. President Biden signed into law this uh, much discussed infrastructure bill, and it includes a lot of money to fix roads and bridges here in Ohio, as well as a, lo- a number of other things, uh, broadband, money for airports, uh, $1.2 billion for public transportation, water infrastructure projects. I mean, it's a pretty sweeping bill. This is really critical for Ohio. So the American Society of Civil Engineers, I saw, gave us a C minus for our infrastructure, which is, you know, not one of those things we want to put on the uh, the welcome signs as people drive into the state, or especially as they're on one of the bridges crossing into our state. But how do you think about this infrastructure bill? I mean, you talked about the inadequacy of state funding. I mean, is this just kind of the infusion that we need? to fill some of these gaps. Is this going to just kind of get us up to speed or can we actually build something exciting with with, with these these new monies? Uh, yes and no. I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think in general, it's a, it's a good step. That's a good step in the right direction, but it's only a step. I think some of the funding you mentioned, including funding for Amtrak is very exciting. I mean, that's more money than Amtrak has ever received since it was created. But the funding for alternatives to roads, highways, and driving is is only a small sliver of the total package. Mm -hmm. It's still heavily geared towards the 20th century paradigm of continuing to build and expand roads and highways. And that, that part is disappointing. And I also think a lot of this depends on what happens with the state DOTs, because the way federal transportation funding works is that it goes from the federal government to the state DOTs and eventually to the metropolitan planning organizations around um, some of the cities and communities in the United States. And so the state DOTs have a lot of Department of Transportation, I guess I should spell that out. They have a lot of control over the details, the actual projects that we will spend money on. So a lot of it, you know, the devil's in the details, as they say. It does have some features, the infrastructure bill, that are very promising. And I think the most promising feature is that it opens the door to a major reboot of federal transportation policy. In the past, federal transportation policy prioritized speed above all else. 
The major objective of transportation infrastructure projects was to make cars flow as fast and smoothly as possible. And previous transportation policy also focused on making people inside vehicles as safe as possible. Mm -hmm. For example, seatbelt use and better vehicle crash performance. Vulnerable road users, such as pedestrians and cyclists, were generally ignored in the past. And a consequence of this is the skyrocketing rates of pedestrian and cycling deaths that we've seen over the past two decades. It's really reached academic epidemic proportions. And some people think this is mostly, you know, these cyclists and pedestrians are mostly affluent people walking and biking the farmer's markets on the weekends, but it's not that at all. You know, when we look at who walks and bikes in our, in American society, it tends to be rich people who like to bike, for example, for recreation and poor people who who bike and walk because they have to, they have no choice. Mm -hmm. And right now, uh, People of color, indigenous people, people who live in poor neighborhoods and older people are being disproportionately killed by drivers. So this is a racial and social justice issue, a major one that's been under-recognized until recently. And I think what's really exciting in this infrastructure bill is that it rejects speed as a primary you know, priority of transportation policy, federal transportation policy, in favor of what's known as a safe system approach. And a safe system approach is something that didn't start in transportation. It's a more general uh, philosophy and approach to, to any type of system. But a safe system approach recognizes that human errors are inevitable, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. people are going to make mistakes. People, no matter what you do, no one's going to be perfect driving. There's always going to be mistakes. And it attempts to minimize the impacts of these errors. Super interesting. And I, I've, I had no idea about that sort of trade-off or that that conceptual question that's going on around speed. I mean, I just think about like the temporality of Ohio. When I mo- first moved here from New York, you know, and I'm going to make my kind of like, uh, you know, New Yorker comment here, which is, you know, I would make 10,000 steps you know, by noon, just getting to work and walking around and going about my business. But here in Ohio, I have to work really hard and really consciously just to figure out how to move my body. So I, it sounds to me like that that's a, a really welcome development. And also we have these changes going on around working at home and where people are and are they spending more or less time in their cars if they have cars or on transit if they're if they're using transit. So it seems to me like that question alone could pay really big dividends for us. Oh, yes. There's really big health benefits from walkability. I mean, walking is very healthy. It's the superfood of exercise. If you could only do one form of exercise, walking would be it. And we've we've kind of focused on this. You have to get 10,000 steps in. That's just a number. That, that actually yeah, comes yeah. from Japan. where, And the Japanese word for 10,000 sounds really good and catchy. So it just caught on as a slogan. The, the general idea is just to make walking and active transportation more generally part of your daily routine. And we also include public transit in active transportation because public transit, buses and rail, it picks up and drops off walkers. So public transit and walkability are best friends forever. I mean, you can't have good public transit without good walkability and good public transit also complements walkability. And I think one of the big issues we have in Ohio is that we don't treat sidewalks as transportation infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Like in Columbus, for example, uh, sidewalks are treated as extension of private property. It's up to the property owner to maintain it. And that's why sidewalks in Columbus are in really terrible shape. 
imagine if we treated streets like that, if the property owner was responsible for the street, preparing the street in front of their, their house or, or, or business, that would be a disaster. That's how we treat sidewalks in, in many communities in the United States. And we, we, we have to stop that. We have to think of sidewalks as transportation infrastructure. They're an integral part of sustainable mobility. So where do these scooters fit into this discussion? All these scooters we see around on the streets. I know there's some disagreement in the the public health community. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of concerns about head injuries and all of that. But then there's also people who say, well, no, but this is an alternative and this is a something we should be supporting. I mean, from a sustainable transportation perspective, not just in terms of the, the, the potential health like downside. Um, how, how do you tend to think about th- that uh, that issue? And it, you mentioned mentioned sidewalks. Um, mm-hmm. And I right now in front of my house, blocking the sidewalk is a scooter. I have to go out and get it as soon as this interview is over. And I've seen this routinely. So that's also another kind of like related issue here. Right now, I th- I think micromobility scooters. That's another word for for uh, scooters. Uh, those are important for our, our sustainable mobility future because most trips within a city are three miles or less. They mm-hmm. could be substituted with other things besides cars. Micromobility is part of the picture there. Anything that we can get people to stop driving single occupancy vehicles, especially for short trips, and move towards other modes are much more sustainable. Um, the big problem with scooters right now is not scooters themselves. It's the fact that we don't make any room for them. So people are forced to ride scooters on the sidewalk and leave them on the sidewalk because we don't create travel lanes on our roads and we don't have designated parking for scooters. If you travel to other places in the world, especially Northern European countries where micromobility is more integrated into the mobility landscape, they've made, um, we now refer to bike lanes as light individual transport or lit lanes, because what's good for biking is also good for scooters and vice versa. So if we would reallocate some of our urban street space towards micromobility and also created parking for, for these devices, they would cause much less trouble. But imagine if cars were in that situation where there was no room for them to move around, no place to park them. They'd be littering the landscape. Well, they already do kind of litter yeah. a lot of our landscape already. But that, to me, is the big issue. We just have to make space for them in their movement and in their storage. And I think that'd be much less of a problem. Now, in terms of injuries, yeah, we have to be careful just like biking. I'm a big advocate of helmet wear when biking or using micromobility because a helmet has saved me a couple times in crashes. But I, I don't. I don't think really the problem is scooters themselves. The big problems with scooters and bike biking in cities is really cars. That's really the the most deadly agent. Uh, you know, th- that's what's really killing people on those things more than anything else. I noticed that during the pandemic, you did some work on this idea of essential travel, and it's something that's a lot of places have been thinking about. You know, do I really need to be? In my office, um, I, right now you're in your office, I'm not. But how do you think about this idea of essential travel? I mean, has the pandemic in a way pushed us to think a bit more about when we need to get in that single occupancy car and drive to work if, if that's the way you go? Um, and, and are we seeing kind of a, a changing of thinking as a result of the pandemic I mean, I, I remember at the beginning, there was a lot of conversation about the carbon footprint and sort of how how, what, how the effect of changes in labor were uh, moving that. But is that part of the story here as well? 
Well, it is part of the story. I mean, one one of the things we noticed during we've done a lot of work, as you mentioned, in my center, uh, Center for Urban Regional Analysis at Ohio State. We've done a lot of work on um, the impacts of COVID on mobility, and you know the social differential in, in mobility changes during during COVID were were striking. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people were able to stay at home. So so we did a, a study looking at Columbus and looked at we divided people into different social groups, and we found that rich people were mostly staying at home. And when they did travel during the COVID lockdowns, they mostly went for recreation, like the parks and things like that. But poor people, not only were they traveling just as much, but they were traveling longer distances because they they had jobs where they had to be on site. They couldn't log in and work from home. And because so many things were closed, they actually had to travel longer distances to work. So we saw this really stark divide between um, mobility patterns during, during, during COVID lockdowns. And I think that's one thing that we really noticed from, from this pandemic is that it really highlighted some of the social differentials that we have in our system and some of the flaws and weaknesses in our mobility systems. Now, what's going to happen in the future? Um, I've seen predictions that as many as a third of office workers won't be coming back. Mm-hmm. I tend to believe that. So I think that that's going to change many of our uh, employment concentrations. I don't think downtowns are going to be the same in the future. But one thing we're noticing is that even though people don't want to come downtown to work, people want to live downtown, mm-hmm. that people are still moving to cities. We were, we're seeing people moving to city centers and to exurbs, two different types of people. So cities are still going to be there. Uh, the cities have been around about 6,000 years, and we've had pandemics like this about every century or so. Cities are still here. I think the role of some of our, our concentrations of employment will change. But one thing we really noticed during, during COVID is that we miss each other, is right. that we want to be with other people. So uh, I, I think we're going to see changes in cities, but we're not going to see like a wholesale abandonment, or we're not going to see people retreating to their homes. I, I think we'll see different, different functionalities change for things like downtown. They, they may go back to being what they used to be for most of urban history, which was 24-7 mixed-use residential commercial entertainment districts rather than focused on a single thing, which is office work from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. Yeah, I saw uh, during the uh, early months of the pandemic this this phenomenon that started to concern me that there was um, this this idea that density ah see we we're proving that density is a bad thing that actually what we need is is sprawl and we need space and we need all that which you know runs counter to uh, what you know I had been uh, advocating and hearing about for a long times in terms of sustainability mm-hmm. um, but we just haven't seen that as a phenomenon I mean, again to my my roots in New York. You know, there was a narrative for a while of seeing New York's over, right? It's never coming back. And now New York's really proud of the fact that their their population is growing uh, possibly even faster than it ever has in the post-pandemic months. So, you know, density is not dead and and, it, and the basic uh, benefits of it, especially around some of the health issues we talk about on this show, um, aging in place and the ability to access services and, right. and goods, right? I mean, all of this is dependent upon really getting cities right, not retreating from the idea of a city. No. And in fact, you're seeing some of the, you know, during right now during COVID, you're seeing some of the worst health outcomes in um, exurban rural areas mm-hmm. while cities are actually doing quite well. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, uh, cities are very resilient. They're very uh, sticky. They, they've been around through history despite shocks and disruptions, and they'll be around in the future. It doesn't mean they're not going to change. I think they will change in the future. But we're, we are social creatures. We want to be with each other. 
And from a sustainability and resilience point of view, we need we need density. I mean, it's just too expensive from a fiscal point of view and from an energy point of view to live a horizontal life as we have been doing in the last century in, in American cities. So this is, you know, above all, a health and healthcare podcast, and a, a lot of transportation issues intersect directly with health. And there's a really robust and growing literature on this. I mean, you're a big player in that literature. Uh, we we know that many patients, uh, especially the disabled and the elderly, you know, just have trouble getting to appointments as, as a very basic uh, point. Um, and this is a, a, a big barrier to access. Um you know, our bus systems are improving, especially the CODA systems made a lot of really great improvements of late with their electric fleet and some of their environmental and sustainability commitments. But it's still a system in progress and that doesn't serve everybody as, as well as it needs to. And I think even the folks at CODA uh, would admit that. Um, we also have, you know, services like Lyft and Uber in this conversation, you know, being reimbursable through Medicaid and in some areas where they're piloting these kinds of things. So I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, the ways in which, as you think about sustainable transportation, we are also at the same time talking about health and healthcare access. And I'll just mention, I know this is a long-winded question, but the flip side of this is the telemedicine conversation and what can we do at home? And I mentioned before that the infrastructure bill pumps a lot of money into broadband access, which could be a good thing on that side of things as well. Yeah, I mean, healthcare access is essential. And it it really does affect um, health outcomes. And, you know, if, if people can't get to medical services, they're just, you know, things that could be taken care of early are going to be, are going to become, um, you know, um, bigger challenges, health challenges in the future. Now, I, I want to say something about public transit is that if we funded public transit, at a much higher level in the United States, it could serve more of our mobility roles and more of our accessibility needs, including getting to healthcare. If you've been to city, other cities in the world like Zurich or Copenhagen or other cities like that, you see that people do use public transit to, to get to everything, not, ju- not just commuting to and from work. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it could happen. Now, not, not everyone can ride a bus or walk or bike. And this is where cars come in, and this is where um, ride-hailing services like Lyft and Uber come in. So people often say to me, oh, you want to ban cars, you're against cars. I'm not against cars. Cars are very useful, but we use them as a, as a solution to all of our mobility problems. And that's how we shouldn't be using them like that. We should be using, we should be using walking, biking, and public transit as the core of a sustainable transportation system. And then cars can serve purposes for, you know, special types of trips for people who don't have the physical ability, you know, for um, if you need to carry things, we should be using cars more as niche mobility, rather than the, the single solution to all of our mobility problems. Yeah. And that's where I think Uber and Lyft can, can fit in. Right now, Uber and Lyft are a very mixed bag and all ride hailing services, not to, to single out those two. Um, the one thing that Uber and Lyft have done for us is that it's low, it seems to be lowering OVI, operating a vehicle under the influence of alcohol or drugs. People are now using Uber and Lyft to get to bars and get home from bars rather than yeah. driving. That's a good thing. Everything else about Uber and Lyft has been, has been bad for cities. They've increased congestion. Uh, we also have the problem of um, less than zero than single occupancy vehicles. 
So a big problem with, with the way we use cars is that most cars just, just transport one person. And that's a real that's a real inefficient when it comes to energy and and space. Uber and Lyft, uh, a lot of times when they're dri- when those cars are moving around, they're actually empty except for the driver. They're going to pick up and uh, passengers. Yeah. So we actually have the phenomenon where we're going to have cars that have less than single occupancy vehicles, you know, oc- occupancy in the future. And that that's that's not the direction we need to be moving. We need to be putting people um, more people into fewer vehicles in order to be sustainable and resilient. Another thing is that it's not fiscally sustainable. I mean, we've seen that, you know, I mean, these Uber and Lyft drivers are basically earning like, you know, very low wages. And it's not really a a viable fiscal model. It's the same, you know, public transit, the one reason public transit works, you know, the the biggest expense in public transit is is operators, bus Mm -hmm. operators. Mm They're expensive. It should be. It's a difficult job. That's why public transit works because we can concentrate lots of people per driver. But when you have one or two or three people per driver, that's just not not financially sustainable. And you could see that now Uber and Lyft during, the, during COVID, we have a lot of drivers have dropped out and now it's become much more expensive and much less available. So it's really not not the future of transportation. And neither is autonomous vehicles for similar reasons, by the way. First of all, autonomous vehicles are not going to happen as soon as people thought. Uh, that we've there's been a major retrenchment in the industry in the last five years. People are realizing that driving is a difficult problem, <laughs> and we're not going to solve it by algorithms. So the, the urban environment's too unpredictable. So, but, but but with the Thomas vehicles, we're still facing the fact that we're taking a 200 pound package, a person, and wrapping them in a four to six thousand pound shipping container to move them around the city. Yeah, that's a loser when it comes to energy efficiency. It's also a loser when it comes to space efficiency. So uh, we really have to move away from single occupancy vehicles being our single mobility solution. That's just not sustainable. When you think about this question of aging in place, and this is a, one of the major goals we have in healthcare, right? This, and most people want to live in their homes as long as they possibly can, and that presents, you know, some logistical questions about how we do this and, and how we keep them safe, but also things like uh, food access or, or healthcare. But there was also this problem of, you know, we have a whole generation of people as we start to think about what what it looks like in the future. People who just don't ha- don't have any acquaintance with public transportation. I mean, they they think of public transportation as something foreign to them, something potentially dangerous. They don't understand how to use it. Even just the idea of when I get on, how do I pay, and these kinds mm-hmm. of things. We're trying to convince people to do this. Um, how how do you kind of deal with that generational issue of getting people in the mindset of this is an option for you, and this may actually afford you benefits? I'll just give you one um, one example. I mean, I will be the first on a rail system, you know, from Columbus to Cleveland or Cincinnati. It will definitely increase my movement around the state if that does happen. Uh, but I'm the kind of person who would do almost anything to not drive because I want to read my book. I want to I want to mm-hmm. relax and getting people to understand that that's a real value has uh, surprisingly to me, not everybody I mentioned that to says, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." Like people aren't as excited about that relaxing or the safety of it or just the opportunity to read a book or have a conversation. So it, it, there's a kind of culture to it. No, you're exactly right. This is a big debate in the transportation science and planning, lit, you know, a community. You know, is chicken and egg kind of thing. Do we change attitudes and then we get better public transit or do we get better public transit then we can change attitudes? 
the the big problem in the United States now is that we've had two or three or four generations at least grow up with bad public transit and think that public transit is just outside of some cities like New York City, that public transit is just for people who can't drive or can't afford cars. In other parts of the world, public transit is for everybody. So, I mean, a simple solution, I guess, would be to fly a lot of people over to Zurich and have them spend a week and then come back and then see what real public transit is like and how yeah. everybody uses it. Um, more realistically, I, I'm, 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 I come down on the side that we just have to provide the infrastructure and services, and then people will use it. And, and we do see that, that when you actually put in good public transit and good, like, protected bike lanes and mm-hmm. walkability, people use it. So, so I'm more optimistic in that sense. I think really, really what we really need now is, is leadership and, and a change, you know, someone who's leaders who are willing to change the way we do things. And I think once we start providing better services, this will happen. I I also would add that there's a generational difference. I mean, people who are older, of course, they don't want to change their ways. They like driving. But people who are older are not the future. People who are younger are the future. And when you look at young people nowadays, they don't want driver's licenses at age 16. They're Mm -hmm. putting it off. They They want to live in city centers. They want to get around, like you're saying, and be able to read and relax and not not have to deal with the stresses and hassles of driving. So I think from a generational point of view, we're in a good position now to to change things. But um, we have entrenched interests and we have inertia and we have fear of change. And we really need our leaders to step up and, and, and do the right things when it comes to transportation. And I do think that we'll, we'll see changes. We'll see behavioral changes if, if, we, if we make public transit more effective and, and more convenient for people. I was going to ask you about the interests. Uh, so, you know, the, the narrative, at least when I was in college and learning about this stuff was, you know, the car industry just comes out and basically destroys anything that's good in the public transportation sector and that this is kind of like where, you know, what the dynamic is. But I, I wonder about Ohio. So, for example, you know, when I moved here and was told, well, you know, the, the passenger rail thing was something that a lot of people talked about, you know, th- this idea that just like, why, why don't we have passenger rail? And I guess we are a little bit of a black hole between, you know, the points east and getting out to Chicago and and all of this. Um, and I, I don't know what the history is there, but is this one of those dynamics where there are really entrenched in- interests that keep this conversation from moving forward? Is it just a lack of leadership without those entrenched interests, a little bit of all of all of the above? Yeah, I don't want to be too conspiratorial or anything like that about entrenched interests, but yeah. certainly there is an auto industry. There are auto dealerships. In a lot of communities, the auto dealers are like the most, they're very influential politically. Yeah. They donate a lot of money to... to to, in campaigns and to politicians. But, um, you know, I, if you mentioned the history. It's really important to realize that Ohio once had one of the best inner city rail systems in the world yeah. a century ago. We once had over 9,000 miles of rail in the state, and now we're down to about 4,000 miles. So at one point a century ago, you could take a train anywhere to any place in Ohio. And we and now it's gone. And the other thing that's that's really interesting from a historical point of view is that Ohio was once the center of a short-lived but revolutionary inner-city mobility revolution, which were inner-city electric railways. These were city streetcars or trolleys that moved between cities, but they moved up to 55 miles per hour. And this lasted from about um, you know about 1890 till about 1920. Hmm. 
And we were the center of it. I mean, Ohio, stretching over to Indianapolis, up to Cleveland, down to Cincinnati. We had a dense inner city electric rail network. And we, um, we threw it away in favor of highways and roads. Yeah. And it, it really it really makes me cry sometimes, <laughs> you know, to be honest. But yeah. so my, my point is that, you know, um, we could be back there again. We do we do have the landscape, we have the density, we do have the rail corridors. The big the big issue now is that a lot of the existing rail corridors and rail track in Ohio is is used by freight rail. And and freight rail is actually very active in the United States. That's what people don't realize that we don't have much passenger rail in the United States, but we have one of the most advanced freight rail systems and one of the most used freight rail systems in the world. So now we're competing for rail track uh, with um with freight, and that that's a difficult problem, and some negotiations have to occur. Um, and we've also abandoned a lot of rail tra- uh, rail track. That's where a lot of the you know, we have a wonderful rail trail for biking system right. in the, right. in Ohio. It's one of the best in the country. That's all that abandoned rail track that used to stretch between cities. Now we ride bicycles on it. I, I you know I'd hate to see us give that up because <laughs> yeah. I enjoy yeah. that so much. But um, my my point is that. Um, We've been there before and, and with, with poorer technology, and we can be there in the future again. So my last question is about climate change and just thinking about sustainability in a little bit of a, a bigger way. You know, it occurs to me that even five years ago, but certainly 10, when climate change was started to become a real big deal, and Al Gore and his, uh, even before that, right, when, when, when that language started becoming part of our, our conversations, it was this big abstract thing. You know, we would talk about, uh, you know, holes in the, uh, in, in the atmosphere and things like this that were very hard to wrap our heads around. Mm-hmm. But now it's becoming a very neighborhood to neighborhood local. We're understanding the health effects, for example, of mm-hmm. climate change. We're seeing it in, in certain weather patterns. It's becoming very personal. Is this also shaping or changing the transportation discussions? I mean, sustainable transportation people have been at it for a long time, of course, but the stakes seem much higher now. And are you finding more buy-in in this kind of work because people are starting to understand what this means? And maybe even people who uh, weren't on board before who start to see the budgetary consequences of not taking climate change seriously, uh, for example. Yes, it is changing the conversation. I mean, in 2020 and especially 2021, it became real for a lot of people. We can we can see this, and it's not going to get better in, in our lifetimes. It's it's going to get worse, and it could get much worse unless we unless we mitigate climate um, change. But in the transportation realm, yeah, we're facing some major challenges to our to our transportation infrastructure. One challenge we're facing is heat stress. Mm-hmm. And heat stress now, because cities are going to get a lot hotter, and also cities um, have an urban heat island effect. So cities get hotter than even the surrounding, um, you know, ambient temperature. This heat stress not only affects, well, first of all, it affects infrastructure. So we we saw this in Minnesota this summer. It got so hot in Minnesota this summer that that roads were buckling. Hmm. Um, they, they're designed for a cold climate. Now it's now it's a warmer climate. So we're going to start to see issues with our bridges, with our rail lines, and with our roads because of um, because of, of global heating. Also, people, you know, we the the kind of tension we're facing now is that we want to get people out of their cars and to be using public transit and to walk and bike to get around, but cities are getting hotter. 
how how are we gonna how are we gonna resolve that tension? One thing we need to do is to plant more trees. That's really a, a, a big thing is to have a big a better tree canopy. And that's something we're working on here in Columbus. They're trying to double the tree canopy from about an average of twenty percent to an average of forty percent. To and part of it is 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 to mitigate this heat stress and make it easier to move around the city. The other thing uh, we're facing is flooding. Yeah. from extreme storms. So we're, we're relatively climate resilient here. And I mean, relatively, we're not climate resilient. Um, in, in many ways, the Great Lakes states are a climate refuge. And I really believe that in my lifetime, that we're going to see people moving back to this part of the world in, in large numbers because of, um, because of other places are becoming more inhospitable because of climate change. Yeah. But what we're going to see, uh, well, and we already have seen, are big rain events that flood um, our rivers and flood our transportation corridors because a lot of our transportation tends to be built along uh, riparian environments. We're, we're already seeing this in Columbus, for example, like I-71 is flooded in places it's never flooded before in these last couple of years. So we're going to have to um, reconfigure our infrastructure to be more resilient and redesign it with en- engineering tolerances that uh, that can that recognize the fact that that all climate records are out the window at this point and things are going to get a lot hotter and there's going to be a lot more stress. So um, yes, the the transportation community has woken up to this uh, to 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 a large degree. They, they they've been more awake than you think. We've just been doing things quietly in the background. <laughs> um, you know, for example, I'm not going to mention a state, but I know of one state that for, for, for a decade or so in their long-term transportation plans have been moving highways back from the coast quietly without raising any political antennas because they yeah. know it'll be, it would be controversial. So a lot of people working at transportation have been doing things quietly behind the scene, but now we really have to accelerate our efforts to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Well, you know, the infusion of money uh, f- from this federal bill, even though, you know, maybe it's not enough to do what we really needed to do, but it's a good opportunity to do more of this work without it being about climate change explicitly and all the kind of nasty politics that can come around from that, but just doing things in smart ways that engineers and other people know they should be doing. And hopefully that that uh, conversation stays off the radar of people who could diffuse otherwise good projects. Well, I mean, you know, we could talk about extreme weather. If you don't like the term climate change, by the way, Everyone should reckon. <laughs> I just want to say that there's no scientific debate about climate change. Yes. We know it's happening. We know it's human induced. End of discussion there. If you're uncomfortable with climate change, think extreme weather. And we already see extreme weather. So, I mean, that, that, that's what we really have, we have to engineer for yeah. is, is, is increasing bouts of extreme weather in the future. Well, Harvey, this is great talking to you. We're going to be providing links in the show notes and on our website uh, to your work with the Center for Urban and Regional Analysis and other, you know, just links to articles about a lot of the issues we've talked about on the show. We've probably just scratched the surface here, though. There's so much more to talk about. But uh, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, be on the show. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Happy to be here. Always happy to talk about these issues because they are really, really critical for our future. Awesome. Thanks. Many thanks to Professor Harvey Miller for joining me on the show. This episode of Prognosis Ohio was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. The music was produced by friend of the show, Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and check out the show's evolving social media presence, please visit the show's website at prognosisohio.com. 
Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE podcast experience. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss future episodes. We're working on some exciting episodes for the next coming weeks. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss them. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening and be well.